Welcome to Reader's Table, the podcast where two story lovers talk about books, movies, and stories of any kind. I'm Nick. And I'm Priscilla. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about the Canadian author Kat Rector. She's the author of The Goddess of Nothing at All, a wonderful, heart-wrenching Norse mythology retelling about Sigyn and Loki. The sequel, Epilogues for Lost Gods, is coming out in November 2022, and we're already excited to see how the journey continues. Stay up to date and join the community on Instagram at Readers Table. If you want to support us and are looking for exclusive content, use our Patreon link in the description. And without further ado, let's jump into the episode. So without further ado, I'm, I'm going to just quickly for the listeners, uh, you know, give a rundown. We've already sent you the agenda, so to speak, with a bunch of questions and a bit of a guide. And so what we're what we're doing essentially is the same that if your listener listeners out there have not listened to the last interview yet, we are going to start off with uh, rapid fire questions, which is just a bunch of questions in quick succession that. Priscilla is going to ask you and that you're going to have to answer as quickly as possible. This has no bearing on the interview itself. It's just to lighten the mood and, you know, just get ourselves into it. Um, after that, we're getting into the nitty gritty. We're going to talk about you as an author and you as a person in general, your creative journey. And then we're going to lead into <coughs> the goddess of nothing at all. Um, the book itself that we have talked about on the podcast and we are going to ask a few questions there and last but not least we're going to talk about a bit of motivational stuff for aspiring writers it could be anything not just writers itself but uh, mainly writing in terms of how you approach it what your style is maybe and and then that's it so with Without further ado, if you're ready, I'm going to give the word over to Priscilla and she's going to kick it off with the rapid fire questions. I'm always so nervous. <laughs> well, me too. Don't worry. I've been, I've been sitting here all morning like, okay, what are we going to say? Same, same. It's like, okay, keep calm. You can do this. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's start off. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Early bird or night owl? Night Owl, 100%. <laughs> what scares you the most? Uh, loneliness. If you could choose one superpower, which one would it be? Flying. What's your biggest strength? Obsessively planning everything. What makes you smile the most? Uh, friends and family. First thing you notice about people when you meet them? Their hair, weirdly enough. <laughs> TV show you last binged? Uh, Archive 81. Scariest thing you've done in your life? Move to another continent. <laughs> What's your spirit animal? Uh, oh, that is a tough one. Um, I'm going to go with the cat because that seems like the obvious answer. <laughs> Best advice you received in life? Just keep going because eventually things work out one way or the other. Would you rather travel to the past or to the future? To the past because at least I know what happened. And there's no mystery about what's coming. Which of the nine realms would you want to live in? Probably like Alfheim because like all the rest of them seem really like dangerous and controversial. But if I went and like chilled with some elves for a while, that feels like a good choice. 
What do you wish you had learned sooner? I think I wish I learned how to balance and relax sooner instead of going a hundred miles an hour for everything for 30 years. Now, last but not least, the goddess of nothing at all or epilogues for lost gods. You know what? Right now, based just on like pure feeling, goddess of nothing at all, because epilogues is like the work in progress and I'm ready for it to be finished and for it to stop bugging me every day. All right. So without further ado, I would like to start it off with the first question. We've already talked a little bit about you moving uh, back to Canada. Um, and since you've lived in Europe, we were just wondering, you know, how was that for you as a non-European, as an experience? And did you learn any of the local languages? For me, it's like a, a, a mix of feelings because I was never the kind of person who expected to move abroad or to travel all that much. It's kind of not in my DNA. I don't have the wonder less that some people have. So I kind of ended up there by accident. And I remember thinking that I was very prepared. You know, I had started like my Rosetta Stone and I was learning Dutch and I was, uh, I thought I was ready and I was not ready. All of the little things that when you move to a new country, especially where you don't understand the, the, the main languages, like I got my hair cut for the first time and my boyfriend had said, oh, it's going to be fine. You can go alone. They're going to understand English. Everybody in Belgium understands English. And she did not. Oh boy. <laughs> the one person that does not speak English especially in Belgium. Especially at yeah. the hairdressers. Yeah. Yeah. So like, it took a long time to get my bearings and it, um, like it was a really good experience in a lot of ways. And I, it, I, it really grew on me in a lot of different avenues. But in the end, we decided to move away because uh, we didn't have as many roots there as we felt we would have in Canada around my family and around um, the friends who had been kind of begging us to come live with them for a while. And our, despite being like in a city, we never utilized the city. And we never, even before COVID, we never did anything. So we kind of just thought, okay, you know what? We would probably thrive better in a place with more nature and it takes forever to get anywhere here, but like there's just like a, a different atmosphere that we're kind of looking forward to exploring. So yeah, it's like, it's super mixed. There's, there's no way to be like, oh, I hated it. And there's also like, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I will probably never move abroad again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. But it's also legit yeah. if you just say, you know, mm -hmm. you, you thrive better in nature. I mean, nature Absolutely. is beautiful. You get the calmness. You can really be without mm -hmm. being stressed all the time. Yeah, I feel like I, yeah. I would definitely also probably not, I'd probably wither in, in, a, in a city environment, like mm -hmm. super big city, because it's just too much. There's, there's no... Yeah. There's no rest, really. So I can relate to that. Yeah. Even things uh, that change, like in Canada, I have my license and I drive and I enjoy driving. And I refuse to get my license in Belgium because the roads are very, very busy. There's a lot of bikes. There's a lot of like weird, like there's, there's just thousands of people everywhere you look. And I'm just like, no, I don't want the stress of this driving experience. No, thank you. Um, in terms of being in in Belgium as well we saw on your website that you had some some of your jobs were in animation public relations 
you dabbled in marketing and, and slinging coffee. I really like that one. <laughs> Did some of these come into play while you were living in Belgium? And yeah, I'm just curious if, if you worked on mostly writing while you were in Belgium or... The unfortunate thing about Belgium is that um, because I didn't, I had like uh, one and two year college diplomas, which did not translate into any kind of certification in Belgium because of how different the school systems work. And even if they had of, like I did animation first, realized how grueling and underappreciated a job it is, changed directions into public relations. Um, and, and I was looking for public relations work because I did have more experience in that field, but there's a lot of demand, of course, for people who can do the same work in English, Dutch, and French. Mm -hmm. And I could not do that. So it was difficult to step into either field in a, in a new country. So I ended up doing a lot of like other odd jobs like retail and working at Starbucks and stuff like that, which, you know, is more or less, it's fine. It's what happened. Like there are worse things to be doing, but it certainly wasn't the ideal situation. Um, and it wasn't until halfway through living there that I started really like taking my writing serious again. So it was really like working. Um, I'd been working for an esports company at one point doing 50 hours a week and then going like writing on the train and trying to finish my book. So it was like 70 and 80 hour work weeks. That's wow, crazy. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Here we have like 41 yeah. hour <laughs> yeah. work week. The hustle like... was real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it, it was. In Switzerland, it's the same. You have like French, Italian and German. And, you know, of course, mm -hmm. you're more like requested if you speak all three languages, depending on where you work. And it's just sometimes a bit depressing because you think oh that job might be so cool for me and then you just read the um, job description you're like oh no I can't I can't I can't <laughs> yeah. yeah what yeah. did you what did you do if you don't mind me asking uh, specifically for um, the esports um, scene um, my spouse is really into like he kind of grew up in the Belgian esports scene so he had a lot of friends in the like in the more business side of things. Um, and I ended up working for one of the local teams for a bit doing some marketing. It was a little, like it was a very good experience. It was a little too heavy for me because it uh, it does require that like 24 seven flexibility of like, it's, it's a business of passion for the moment until like there's more of a um, stability in the industry and you really have to be willing to like interact with social media 24 7 and be on the road when there's events and I like to do that but for my book for my like the writing the writing thing is where not 100% of my passion is so esports was like a very cool side adventure that I did but it's definitely not somewhere that I can put 100% of my energy which is exactly what they require right yeah, it's a lot, especially when you can't identify with it. You need that passion to sort of fuel you. Yeah, and it's definitely, it's definitely. And true. I'm, I'm a, I'm a gamer, but like not. It's like <laughs> I've always been a solo gamer. Like yeah, like like grinding Counter Strike is not my idea of a good month. So. <laughs> right, I relate to that. Yeah, I appreciate that wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the gaming is is a uh, you know different taste, but for me, I agree. 
So we assume, right, that you probably can't see yourself going back to like doing PR or animation in the future and just want to really stick to writing as a job. Or is it still something you could imagine doing? Like, Interestingly enough, um, I have never used either diploma more than I have with writing. Um, I did some like internships and things and some small jobs, but never really got into like a full-time career job with either uh, diploma. And now I am consistently using like my Photoshop skills and stuff from uh, the animation schooling and then my marketing stuff from PR for the book. So finally, for the first time in my life, I'm feeling like these diplomas that I spent all this money on and spent all this time on are finally working towards something. I had like, like a lot of people struggled with like where I had wasted my money and uh, mm -hmm. now it just kind of accidentally all came together. So I can't like, I can't see myself wanting to go do like a 40 hour a week PR gig, but I could see myself using those skills in like different avenues of writing, whether that was like in the future doing like formatting for people or um, something adjacent to editing because editing's a little too specific. Like in that sense, if we if we combine the diplomas that way, yes. Um, I can't see myself going to work at like a shoe company to sell shoes. Yeah. Good example. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that, that these things uh came together for you mm -hmm. and that you're able to do this that's really cool yeah it um, gives people like us hope too yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah because there's certainly that that you know certainly something to be said about that pressure of or maybe not pressure but uh, being in the ether and not knowing where to go uh not knowing if it turns out the way you want to or if anything that you've done or studied or spent money and time mm -hmm. on uh really is going to um you know further a passion so i'm happy that this that this happened i i don't really find cool. that like at least for me growing up like it was kind of very like strict categories of careers right like lawyer doctor teacher and i never thought about like where certain skills can take you between different jobs and like we have this opportunity now to be like really creative with what we make a career out of and it, mm -hmm. If not for that, I don't know, I'd probably just be back in retail somewhere because I like, all of my skills are so weird and they don't fit together anywhere else, but they fit together perfectly here because I had to make it up. So yeah, I mean, I really encourage people to like, I don't know, stick it out and keep looking for the place to put those skills because it can be super depressing when you're not sure where to go next, but there's like, there's going to be something that you can figure out. Were you scared to make the move to become a writer? I had actually in Belgium been unemployed for a little bit and I didn't have any kind of social group and it was just me and my spouse. And we would be like, I'd be in the apartment all day, every day, nowhere to go, nothing to do. So I was kind of like, okay, you know what? I'm going to follow this like Norse myth rabbit hole. And I started like basically writing fan fiction because I wasn't like the, the, the edits and stuff, the source material wasn't really giving me like the answers for the questions that I had. I was getting like really psychological with what I wanted to know, like, wow, what were they thinking and this and that, and like things that I would never have an answer to. So I just kind of like started writing my own answers and it wasn't for two years that I was like, maybe maybe this is enough that I could like do something with it and not just keep it in a Google Doc on my computer. 
to, to take a quick detour back to uh, video games because I like video games <laughs> and I play video games a lot myself. I just I just personally also want to know like what kind of video games do you play? Uh, is there anything in particular that you like to name that might have inspired your writing too? I tend to be, if left to my own devices, I play like a lot of solo story games or um, something that's like kind of mindless that allows me to listen to a book. So there's like two categories. Um, I play a lot of things like Stardew Valley or um, Don't Starve or things that like once I get the mechanics down, I can just do it and not really pay attention so that I can listen to these other books. But um, if I'm really into a game, I'll play things like uh, Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. That was like nice. one of the really big atmospheric ones that like, because it's like Celtic and Norse, I, I don't know if there's much that you can see in the book from it, but I was try really trying to like play all these Norse games while I was writing it to like stay in the vibe. Uh, and that one's like a really good dark one. What about The Witcher? <laughs> I know you know what I watched The Witcher yeah I downloaded the third game like I, I purchased it installed it and never played a second of it I'm actually really bad with uh, open world games because I will do quest upon quest five spend 50 hours on it and find out that I haven't even gotten through the story yeah, yet. all the side quests <laughs> yeah. yeah by the time I'm done with the side quest I'm bored and I haven't completed any story yet, and I put it down. So I'm just letting it go. And then lots of Pokemon games. Oh, Pokemon is great too. Oh, there you can yeah. connect. Yeah. <laughs> have, you have you played the new one? Legend yes, I actually really, really love that. You're, yeah, I loved it too. I think it's great that they added the new mechanic to just you know go in and out of battles seamlessly and catch Pokemon seamlessly without waiting to get into battle and weaken them first. That's really cool. Well, talking about inspiration, we read on your blog that you love horror movies. <laughs> Can you see yourself writing a horror novel at some point in the future or even just for fun, a script for a horror movie? I can definitely see myself writing horror books. Um, I don't know yet what that looks like. And a lot of the things that I'm kind of like the, the book ideas I have for the future or whatever they they have like a bit of horror incorporated in them, but it's like not enough to be probably classified as horror. Like the goddess of nothing at all. Some people would definitely say that the end tends to like trends towards a bit of horror E. It's not fun. <laughs> and there are aspects in epilogues that are also kind of like dark and weird and creepy. Um, so even though I'm not like writing a horror book at the moment, I'm definitely taking every opportunity to put some of that in. Nice. That's great. Like you that. know, yeah, you're not that much of a horror fan. No, really. I, you know, I can watch something <laughs> with small jump scares and I can't sleep. <laughs> I'm terrible yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, I do love horror. So I, I was, uh, you know, ecstatic to find out that you do too. And, and how that might've influenced or still does influence your writing. Do you have some favorite horror authors? Weirdly, I don't read a lot of horror. Like a lot of the horror that I actually take in is like tends to be movies or TV shows. Um, Fair enough. But um, there is one book that definitely sticks out. And I think it's like, I wouldn't say unknown, but I don't think it's as mainstream as like a Stephen King. And But it is Hex uh, by uh, Stephen Olda Hervoltz, I think is his name. And... 
it was so creepy. I really enjoyed it. I I need to find a lot of like a, some some good horror that like I find the issue for me is that um, reading horror you don't get that like the the same cues that like the visuals give mm-hmm. that like they're doing things with the sound and the lighting and all these things that kind of give me that extra level to how creepy something is and my brain doesn't necessarily do that by itself with a book okay. so. I'm out of practice. <laughs> Hex is that the one? If I if I I haven't read it yet, but I put it on the list um, with the witch in the town and people can't leave or something like that. Yeah, that's the one. Um, another <clears throat> question. Now that we're talking about books, do you have a favorite underrated novel? A lot of what like I would consider like when I when I hear underrated now, I just think indie because um, a lot of the books that you see going around like book talk or booktube or whatever um tend to be like traditionally published and um the kind of books that it's like it's very popular to read these books and like everybody has a copy um I have a small pile here that I'm I put aside so I wouldn't remember or wouldn't forget the the ones that I meant to bring up my critique partner um she wrote a book called Heart and Soul and it is like the only I'm not a romance person and her book is like the only romance that I have ever liked in my life. It's super cute. And it's like, um, it's like a very communicative, very, um, it's like a warm hug, which is a thing that I have needed recently, like in a book with the, just the state of everything. I'm just like soft books. I'm going to buy some soft books and as well. Legends and Lattes is one that's been going around lately um, by Travis Baldry. And it's like D&D cozy Starbucks experience. Okay, definitely put that on my list right now. (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) It is not something that I thought I would like, but I've listened to the audiobook three times now. It's five hours. It's not a big, like it's not big at all, Um, but it's just like, an orc is done with her life as a, like uh, as like a fighter, and goes and opens a coffee shop in a town where they don't know what coffee is. And it's there's something about it that is really um, fulfilling to like a thirty year old adult mind. <laughs> um, and the author actually used to work on the um, oh what's it called Torchlight series. It's one of the creatives of Torchlight. So the storytelling mechanics are spot on. They're, these these two books are not at all on genre with my book, but I loved them. Speaking about self-publishing, you self-published uh, The Goddess of Nothing at all. And in relation to that, um, you are now writing a duology, as it seems like a continuation of that. Do you feel that writing a sequel to a novel that was uh, self-published has more expectations now that people that you know you've gathered quite a following and do you think that somehow changes your writing does that influence you at all or do you just go the same way I think it's kind of a mix because on the one hand I do I kind of have this weird mix of like nerves and confidence that um the confidence side shows up as like okay well you know it's it's my book and I'm going to write what I think it needs to be 
and, um, you know, take feedback and try to strengthen what it is rather than like try to bend to what people might expect, because then um, if I'm not writing what somebody else wants from me, then it's not going to show through in the, in the passion and like the, the effort that I'm putting into it. On the other hand, uh, it does have a certain like, I've created a brand for myself now that's like, um, I am going to try to rip your heart out of your chest. And if I don't kind of fulfill that in the next book, then it kind of is like, I don't know if it's misleading or what you want to label that as, but if I don't kind of um, stay on that brand, or if I'm writing like a new book in a new series and it's was completely like, you know, happy-go-lucky or something, it might not appeal to the, re the reader that read the first book. Right. So yes and no. So I right. think we can mm -hmm. move over to the second part of the interview where we talk about your book. Mm -hmm. I have it here without the strap. <laughs> so first of all, thank you very much for writing this. It was such a pleasure to read it and it's really good work. You know, your writing is fluid and, you know, just the way you um, portray the characters was just greatly done. Thank you. That's, that's so nice to hear. Um, I mean, when you put something out in the world, you expect that somebody will like it, but it might be five people instead of, you know, 500. And it's been really nice to get some kind of confirmation that I did something right. I really, I value that so much. Yeah, you did. You did 100% mm -hmm. right. <laughs> so, well, that actually brings me to the first question. What inspired you to create the goddess of nothing at mm -hmm. all, specifically having Sigin as a protagonist? I had mentioned before about how I was like home um, and doing nothing. So I just kind of followed the rabbit hole and asking all these questions. And um, I originally like, you know, back at the start of this whole Avengers thing had like just <laughs> latched onto Loki as a villain. And then over the years, you know, I was, I was having the fun Marvel experience and then started to read like Neil Gaiman's book, Norse mythology came out and then was reading that. And it made me ask all these questions, like, why would they make this choice? Why wouldn't they do this? And I kind of having sympathy for Loki's character come, you know, having come from all this fan stuff, I was asking questions like, well, if someone took my kids and did X, Y, and Z, and if someone was cruel to me in this way, would I also react the same and like, really coming at it from like the the um, like human empathy aspect and I started writing but I wanted to do something that kind of hadn't been done because you know um a lot of us get this idea in our head that we can't write anything too closely to what other anyone else has written so it has to be 100% original which is not in fact true but it is a thing that we assume um so I was like, okay, what has not been done, but is also kind of Loki centered. And no one had really written anything about Sigyn and nobody was even paying attention to her outside of like pagan communities. The more I looked, the less that I found that I liked because there's a deep divide between there are people who are empathetic to Loki and Loki's family. And then there are people who are absolutely not. And uh, some of the things about Sigyn that you would find is like, she's an abused wife. 
and she is uh, was a child bride. Had like nothing remotely positive or that gave her any kind of like advocated for her at all, where she, like she had no agency. Um, and I really didn't like that. <laughs> I thought, you know, canonically, Loki is supposed to be handsome and intelligent. Feels like even if he wasn't a great guy, he could probably attract some woman who genuinely liked him. And I just kept asking questions and going from there and trying to, you know, make it into something worth reading. I imagine you read a lot, you know, as you said, you know, going through all the questions. Did you learn anything unexpected during your, like, so to say, research journey? Uh, there were a lot of little details that surprised me. And there's probably a lot of things that I still don't know because um, there's a lot of like small details you can find in the history side that I didn't like, didn't get to explore everything in that because it's just endless amounts of information. Um, but there was, the deeper I went, um, the more I found articles and uh, investigations that people were doing into uh, the queer aspects of Norse mythology. And there's more now than there was when I was writing. And it's interesting to watch people kind of take things like context clues from the source material and apply them to particular things that they know from history and say, okay, well, actually this sounds super gay if you read it with this context. And so there's a lot of little things, like there are passages about Odin, where if you extrapolate with the knowledge of like, magic was supposed to be for women and cowardly men, but Odin does magic, what does that mean? And there's, it's all speculation. No one's here to tell us what exactly happened and what exactly it meant, but it is really interesting for me from that angle. That's something I'm deeply, deeply interested in. <laughs> Another question that I have regarding the novel is when you started writing book one, was it already clear for you that you wanted to write book two as well? Or was that just something that developed over the course of writing? I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at first about a book two. I knew what I wanted to do for how to say this without ruining. <laughs> there was one part of book two that I knew I wanted to write. And I wasn't sure if that was just something that I wanted for me or if it was something that would be a book. And I wanted to set up book one in a way that if the book didn't have any success and if there was like 10 readers, they would still be satisfied with what they were given and it would still be an ending. And so it is set up like in a way that if you stop there and you never went back to the next book, you would be content, I think. Um, but the more I wrote and worked on book one, the more I really wanted to pursue this particular angle in book two. And then I realized that it also was not a full book and had to like keep developing that idea out into something that's still being developed. In terms of um, publishing, is this self-published? What made you choose to self-publish? Was that something that just happened to you and, and that was just more convenient in terms of maybe, I don't know, business-wise? Or is that something you really wanted to do from the get-go? I chose from the start to go the self-publishing route. I never submitted a single manuscript to anyone because um, to a certain degree, traditional publishing takes a book that they know that they can sell 
and that they know is in a format and a style that appeals to the general population. Um, there are plenty of outliers to that logic. Like there are lots of books that are for a particular group of person and it does really well with that group of person. But um, I didn't think that the book that I was writing was a format that necessarily would be interesting for the general public. And some people have been really enthusiastic about the pacing and the way it's like kind of episodic. And some people have really not been interested in that and that that's fine that this is exactly what I knew it was going to happen um and as well like I did not want someone kind of telling me well okay we're going to need you to dilute this that's this thing that's important to you in the plot to make it more palatable for like the general public and maybe that would not have happened but that was a thing that was on my mind um so this like going self-publishing like that allows me to keep all of the creative control and you know it um it puts a lot of pressure on other spaces but that was the most important thing to me in general so i wanted to keep it after you finish book two do you see yourself writing something else um in the realms of norse mythology or do you feel like now is the time to switch genre or topic um, probably for like the main plot, like, like the, the main books, like I'm going to be finished putting out novels in this because I'm partly, I don't want to, um, write myself into a corner where I accidentally am like breaking my own canon. Cause I know that that's going to happen at some point. Um, but I am doing like some short stories. I'm going to have like a collection of short stories for book one and then a collection for book two, once that's finished of just like characters getting to show off kind of like a little bit more about their maybe their origins or particular scenes that are just like soft and fluffy or whatever but that's kind of like those are all like self-contained and I don't feel like I'm breaking too much of my own plot with them um after like book two and then the two short story collections I will probably be done with Norse mythology for the foreseeable future I have a work in progress that I've kind of been poking at about um, like a, a Salem witch trials type of thing, but um, like inspired by that kind of setup, but with more agency for the witch and um, blending that more with like um, herbal medicine and traditional like midwife stuff. And then, um, the other character is like a little you know kind of naive man who ends up like getting mixed up with this witch and there's something wrong in the town etc cetera, etc cetera. so gonna be dark also but not norse well i'm gonna read it still <laughs> <laughs> do not hold your breath there's nothing <laughs> Could you see yourself, or no, not like in general, the, that the books are being adapted to the screen? If so, do you see The Goddess of Nothing at all and its sequel more uh, as a series or a movie? Um, this is the kind of thing that like most of my friends and family are not readers. So they'll like, you know, the comment they make is like, oh, someday I could see this being a movie. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. That Thank you for that, you know, support. Mm -hmm. um, I can't see that being a thing that happens. Um, 
but I also am the kind of person who will like set my expectations in a reasonable manner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would be like over the moon if that ever was an option for me. I could see it probably more reasonably working out as episodes, like, I don't know, like like one of those limited series type things, because already the book is kind of episodic in nature. So if you break it down into like sections rather than like a three hour movie, I feel like that would cover the um, the material better and in a way that's like more palatable. What did book one or even book two teach you as an author and what did Sigin teach you as a character? Writing the book definitely taught me a lot about um, myself and my work process and what is and isn't possible to kind of like get done in a day. Um, I'm learning how to balance my life and like where my limits are with like, I could reasonably sit down for a full 16 hours and work because I really enjoy it. And to me, like spiritually, that is not a problem, but I am learning that it's not exactly healthy and it doesn't exactly fulfill my other needs and people have to eat. (laughs) And so it's teaching me a lot about like myself as a person and where I need to draw some lines for myself. Um, Second, as a character, when I started writing this book, I was not aware that of like, a particular aspect of myself. I thought I was writing Sigan as a bi character because that I should do that. And that is like an important, you know, diversity is important. And I'm writing through the through the book and I'm like, oh no, you know what? Oh no, that's me. Oh no. So at like 29, I was having this kind of emotional crisis writing this book, discovering like, oh, as I'm writing these things, actually these are like, this, this feeling applies to me. And this, uh, this scene, could be something that I'm feeling. And then I start, you know, messaging my friend, like, I think I have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) So she, she taught me that I would, I, that I am bi and that I am actually, you know, on, on the, the queer spectrum. And it has kind of changed my, the way I relate to different books and different characters and the way I kind of come at different things in my life. So it has been, um, this completely fictional character has changed my life entirely. <laughs> but I think that's very beautiful yeah, that fiction can teach you a lot about mm-hmm. yourself and writing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Talking about characters, which character would you least and most likely want to be in quarantine with out of like the, the Norse mythology cast? <laughs> mm-hmm. If I'm being smart, I would say someone like Eden because she is supportive and she would like take over some of the cooking and like be a very good friend that would be consistent. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to have the most wild quarantine of my life, I would pick Loki because he would like boredom and Loki probably would not go well together. So you'd always be doing something you shouldn't be doing. So it really like smart choice or fun choice. I think fun choice. <laughs> I mean, quarantine can be boring, so. Yeah, chaos. Yeah. <laughs> what compliment meant the most to you after success of book one? I mean, all of them, to be honest. Like everything, every piece of feedback that I get that someone enjoyed or related to, et cetera, et cetera. Like all those things 
mean a lot to me, especially because um, like the book is doing well, but it is also not like mainstream or anything. So um, a week could go by and I haven't heard anything about like, there's been no, um, no one reaches out or anything and, and that's fine and normal. And then someone will show up and, and be like, I've really related to Sigan. I really enjoyed this book. It was really cathartic for me. Um, and kind of like anything that they're able to relate to or that they feel like it has helped them. Uh, that's the kind of thing that really sticks with me. There have been people who have told me that um, one of the relationships in the book helped them sort through losing their father. And one person said that they had like seen themselves in Sigan and like their ex her experiences of not being heard. And mm -hmm. so that kind of thing motivates me to keep going that deeply into characters and not to shy away from like hard topics. That's kind of, you know, that's part of why I'm writing it is to explore hard topics for people who also need to explore them. And uh, it's, it's very validating to know that I'm working in the right direction. I think it's wonderful that you do that, you know, because um, in, in writing, I believe there's a certain, um, I don't know what to call it. It's not a stigma, but it's a self-conscious bias maybe in that you shy away from wanting to write intimate stuff about character, about, you know, psychological truths and whatnot and explore, exploring these things. So I think that's really important and great that you can do that and that people can relate to those things. That's, it's kind of always been what reading has been for me. Like I read a lot of um, darker books or like books that explore things that uh, human experiences that are not as positive on some things as, you know, really particular to trauma or whatever. And maybe that says something really specific about me that I'm enjoying these dark books, but um, they can be very cathartic and they can help you work through your own stuff or give you tools to work, help someone else work through their things. So that's, I, I have always rather explore something difficult than to kind of read something that doesn't challenge me. There's, mm -hmm. there's a time and a place for, for me, for books that don't challenge me. That's nice every once in a while, but my go-to is always something that's going to push my worldview. When writing or even after writing upon, upon finishing and now writing on the second one, is there a favorite scene or quote for you for book one? I am horrible with quotes. <laughs> I, sometimes someone will tell me a particular thing. They really liked it. And I'm like, did I write that? I don't remember, but thank you. Um, as far as favorite scenes, I really enjoyed writing the um, retelling of the myth where uh, Thor is dressed as a bride and goes to Jotunheim. That is one of my favorite myths. I really like how that myth shows off um, the ability to be in like this really hard life and still find um, fun stories and kind of ways to be mirthful about things. They, uh, there's several myths that have this kind of um, dark humor that really appeals to me. Um, and I really, really enjoyed kind of getting to explore that and kind of getting to um, insert things into it that made, at least to me, some sense because it doesn't 
100% go with the uh, the original, still have fun with it, and kind of get to do that. Um, it has a, a feel to it that's kind of like Red Riding Hood, where they're kind of doing the, the questions back and forth of like, Freya, why are you so tired? And like, ah, I just had a lot of fun with it. What about the characters? Who was really challenging to write and who was easy peasy so much fun for you? Loki was easy. Loki, um, I knew what I wanted him to be going into it. And um, like Thor and Odin and some of these other characters that are like, they're well-described in pop culture and they're well-described in the Eddas, they kind of have a pre-existing personality. And the person who did not was singing. <laughs> so it was um, several drafts that I had been working with her as a main character before I really started to figure out like her voice and who she is consistently from scene to scene um, because she really was 100% invention other than one particular action and one particular myth. And it was hard to invent her from the ground up when everyone else was kind of pre-existing. Um, I think it was like draft five where I was starting to be happy with who she was as a character. It must have been difficult, is it, to have, especially with the despair or the um, contrast of, as you've mentioned, characters that are well explored in pop culture versus Sigan, who's not, and then and then you have to do all the heavy lifting. Yeah, there are, there are also other characters um, that are not heavily explored in the Eddas, and that's part of why I chose them as a cast, like uh, like Hod and um, some of the other people who are like mentioned and never talked about, not really. Um, but these other characters, I'm not in their head from a first person point of view, and they're only here for a scene or two, and then they disappear. So like they are, you can, as an author, build a character for a scene to fit that scene, and then they come back in six chapters and they fit that scene. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be 100% fully fleshed out. You can get away with it, but not from a first person point of view. So it's a lot different. So for the last part of the interview, we are going to talk a little bit about the writing process itself and everything that's tied to it. You had already mentioned that you like all the reactions, you've, you've gotten all the motivational uh, stuff that people have said to you about your writing, about your book, about your characters. Um, in the close circle, like your friends, family, what was your reaction like when you told them or they found out that you're going to write and then self-publish this novel? I had been, as a teenager, kind of working with my best friend on, on like just fanfic writing. She was the only person that I told for about two years. I would pass her chapters, she'd read it and be you know, enthusiastic, and then I would ride on that enthusiasm to work more on it. And it wasn't until I had like a completed, I think like a fourth draft that I just finally started saying like, hey, I've been writing a book for the last two years. <laughs> um, remember how I wouldn't hang out or wouldn't call <laughs> you or whatever. That's what I've been doing for two years. And my family has been super supportive and my friends have been fantastic. Uh, weirdly, and I did not expect this, um, a bunch of my aunts bought and then read the book. I expected either to like, for them to be like, oh, congratulations, and you know, that's it. 
or for them to buy it and not read it because that would also make sense. And then like, oh, I've been reading your book and I've been really enjoying myself and I don't know anything about this, but it's really fun. And it's so nice. Like I, again, I'm the kind of person who will kind of like set reasonable expectations and then be happy when something else happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my mom's like, well, of course they would read the book. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know mom. <laughs> it, they've been great. It's, it's been super cute. What was the most difficult part of the artistic process? Was it the writing or the research or the editing or something completely different? <laughs> First drafting is probably the most difficult part. Um, I, especially since like getting over to Canada and kind of like my time is more divided than it used to be when I'm trying to write things from scratch, I, um, I really like to have like a flow. So I like to be doing it for like several hours uninterrupted and just kind of sink into it and stay there. And when I'm unable to do that or like my lifestyle, like if I'm going to try to write on a train and it's only 50 minutes and it's not by the time I'm in the zone, I have to get up and leave. Mm -hmm. So that tends to be um, the most difficult part. Everything else I can kind of pick at, at like, random intervals editing I can start and stop when I feel like doing that but yeah creative first drafting is probably the most um inconvenient is there some sort of uh, advice that you stumbled upon maybe that you would give other writers that might be struggling with the same thing how to find the zone uh, or the flow get into the flow state easier For me personally, um, I have not mastered this yet, but I I know the problem is like boundaries, like protecting your writing time, telling people in your life, like if your schedule where you want to write is between 8 a.m. and 12 and you're available in the afternoon, then you have to protect that time and be strict with people about like what you will and won't do. Uh, I suck at it. I, 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 especially since getting back, I really value being with people so if somebody says do you want to I will say yeah I want to (laughs) um but you really do have to make the choice to sit down and do it because otherwise you look back and a week is gone and you have not done any writing I have a bit more of a technical maybe question um to those listeners who don't know what outlining versus discovery plotting is essentially is people that write Um, tend to decide whether they want to do a lot of work before or after the first draft or a couple of drafts. And outlining is essentially the process in which you would write um, all of the characters out and the setting and the plot and plan things and when in uh, what chapter which is going to be approached. And then discovery plotting is more so you have an idea and then you just write and, and see what happens. Um, as as far as your book or books go, what is what is your approach there? Did you outline the entire duology? Did you start outlining the first book, or did you just have this idea and then sort of wrote and explore? The first book um, is not going to be anything like the process of my other books because I really I wasn't taking it seriously and I just threw ideas on a page and did it for fun with no accountability to myself or anyone else. And now I'm learning after kind of having played with things for a while, like I knew that I did not want to approach book two or anything else 
the same way. So I tried to be really strict with myself and do a lot of outlining first. That did not work for me. I can and should be doing a certain amount of outlining, but for me, it tends to be um, like plot beats. So I know I want to get from A to B and then from B to C and between A and B, I think there'll be a fight and like, I'll know my setting and um, what characters are there and what emotions I want to get out of it. And what, like, um, because I'm so character driven, like what, um, what do I want to the character to experience here that works towards the end, but I have to write the scene with those ideas in mind in order to like know what the fight looks like, what the characters are going to say to each other. It, I, I have tried to imagine it in order to outline it, but it has yet to work for me at all. So it's like a very strict discovery plotting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, I prefer, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just more interesting way mm -hmm. of writing discovery planning as well to me personally um i know you had already said that you really care about character and you get into their heads and, and try to figure out um why certain choices are being made and how you might want to approach that or how a different character would do that um so that must come quite easy to you in terms of plot then that you've now said would you say that requires you the most timed plot because setting and character might come easier to you uh character definitely comes easier to me than plot um with book two especially when i was unsure if i was going to be doing a book two i knew the emotional things and like i knew the struggle that i wanted to put the character through and where i wanted the character to start in an emotional personal growth arc and where i wanted them to end with that arc um but then I had to figure out every single bit of the plot that was going to co like coincide with this arc. And I had no idea. I knew the setting. I knew where like the place that it was going to take place in and what the character was going to go through, but not even to the extent of like where they were going to go, what monster they were going to encounter, whatever. No clue at all. Plot um, takes up the most of my like, strategic energy mm -hmm. if that's the way you want to put it so you definitely would say that character is your favorite part of, of just you know working towards yeah. yes um i would not be the kind of person who could write like an epic fantasy in the way like game of thrones is written for example because i just don't have i'm already trying to figure out what's going to happen i don't need to have like eight million details in there I, the, the struggle is already too real. So there, I'm never going to get to the point where it's like very epic detailed fantasy plots with like intermingling plot lines. Just, you'll have to leave that for someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of struggling, do you recommend the route of self-publishing to other writers? Uh, I think it is a deeply personal choice to make. I think if you are willing to put in a lot of time and effort um, to get the result that you want, that's the cost of maintaining creative control. I was fortunate enough to already have been trained in things like marketing, 
But if you don't have training for particular things, you either have to have the willpower to go and learn them or the money to pay someone to do it for you. And either route is acceptable, but regardless which you choose, there's no way to be a self-published or indie author and be very passive about your job. It is a passive income when you have a following where you don't have to market yourself anymore. And that is not like, that's not on the table for me anytime soon. It's going to be, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have that, it's like a five-year journey that most people don't write as their full-time job until there's like an, an income they can rely on. So it's like a lot of time and effort. And I, I, I feel like I'm going to scare people off of doing <laughs> it by saying it this way. But um, that's just kind of the reality is if you're looking for a uh, easy lifestyle, this isn't it. And traditional publishing also is going to expect you to like market your own book if you get a deal and you're going to like still be like beholden to other people and have to be on the ball about a lot of things. So there's no version of publishing that's like, write the book and sit on your butt. Mm -hmm. No matter what you do, you got to be ready to put the work in. So um, talking about money, we pondered a question, you know, how does a new writer go about the budget? You know, what is there to think of? And how do you really say, okay, um, now we put this amount for this thing and then this amount for the other thing. And how do you work about this? It is a very different question depending on who you ask. For me, I knew where my strengths lie. So like I can format my own book that costs somewhere around, I'd say, depending on the length of the book, around $400 to ask someone to format your book. If you have the skill, that budget piece is deleted. So it's important to like go through each piece of what you need and say, can I do this? Do I have the time to do this and the skill? And can I do it well? And if not, how much is it going to cost? Uh, a cover is very important to have. Like, a, like and the majority of people can't paint the way that my cover artist paints, for example. So like, I can't do that. I'm aware of that. So I paid good money to have it done. And it was an investment that I put in knowing that her art was going to be a catching piece. And it is 90% of the reason that anyone looks at my book because they see the cover and they're like, whoa. And even like, I see the cover and I'm still like, whoa. <laughs> um, so if I had not budgeted for that, um, I would not have gotten the attention that I got from the cover. But as well, depending on like, there are ways to save yourself money, like working with lesser known artists. Um, there are ways to get like learn, learn things for yourself so that your budget can be lower. But if you are paying for certain things and you are um, not able to skip a lot of steps because you lack the skill and you can't put the time in, probably you're looking at like between two and 5,000 for a book, depending on what you decide to skip, depending on what kinds like you can find editors who will charge you um, half the price of some other editors because they really want to work with indie people and they will like give you a discount if you're indie. Um, but it's very individual. Absolutely. 
And um, if there is someone listening that's looking for a good guide to this, um, the guy who wrote Legends and Lattes, Travis Baldry, wrote a um, an article over on medium.com that's like step-by-step A to Z what he did to get the book published, like from first draft to publication. And it's really helpful. Oh, right. that's great. We're going to link to that in the description of yes. this episode. Yeah. I think it's funny because we, like there's this quote, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but the cover is the thing that yeah. catches people's attention. It is important. Yeah. Yes. And I don't know, it's 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 art too, you know, and you're like, oh, it's beautiful. I need to possess this. But on the <laughs> other hand, it's like, will the content be good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really important um, if you're trying to like design your own covers just to be really aware of where your skill is and is not. Some people can uh, paint a cover very nicely. Some people can design a cover using like existing Photoshop stuff um, and they do a great job. And some people like are not aware that they're not doing well. And it's a really hard skill if you don't have the awareness to become aware, but it's better to trust someone you know has the skill than to guess if you have the skill. So to to sadly for us round this off, <laughs> Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would give uh, new writers that would want to self-publish? To keep at it, like to be aware of the amount of work that is coming. Give yourself like a reasonable deadline with things and just like keep working forward because there's so much to research and there's so much to make sure you understand ahead of time that if you don't give yourself a reasonable deadline. You're like, I'm going to have this book published in three months. Okay. Um, if you're booking services, those services have waiting lists and you have to like, there's a lot of planning involved to make sure all these steps like work well for your release date. So the more research you can do ahead of time to give yourself a good timeline and just set an appropriate amount of time for the work ahead the better off you're going to be. I, so many authors will say like online or like in um, like private discords and stuff like, I thought I had my timeline right and now I can't fit in an editor and like just take it slow, take it slow and give yourself <laughs> the appropriate amount of time to get it done. All right. That's great advice. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, we, we've reached the end. Thank you so much yes. for your patience yes. with zoom and with us and taking your time it's no to do problem this. i have had so much fun you yeah, had a good time we're glad yeah we had a good time too you know where can people find you if there's anything you would like to plug i am on twitter instagram and tiktok and that's at cat underscore rector my website is catrector.com um and on the website you can find sample chapters to see if you're interested in the book there's a lot of extras like playlists um and i have a lot of like extra resource material in my like link tree link that's in all of my bios so you can find pretty much anything you need there and if you can't find it dm me That's it for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed listening to our fun chat with Cat Rector. Stay up to date and join the community on Instagram at Readers Table. If you want to support us and are looking for exclusive content, use our Patreon link in the description. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>